Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Um, We're in this series, Extraordinary Power and Extreme Love, and that's what we've been seeing from Jesus. Uh, I mentioned as I prayed for um, our brother Mick, who's in uh, North Kenya. This was a letter from him a number of years ago. A recent tragic passing instilled a horror of fear in our community. For eons, the fear of death has gripped the Samburu. In death, you cease to exist. But this recent demise is as much about fear in life as in death. A Samburu sorcerer visited the elderly man's humble hut, and the next day, he was dead. It was a curse, he spat, as I was told the story. Happened to another woman only six months ago, he spat again. He does it to give longer life to his own. The death of one to save the lives of his family. In deep dread, our community took up a collection at the time and gave the money to the sorcerer to send him away. The village to the north said they would stone him to death if he came there. The village from the west said the same if he came there. It seems everyone I know is convinced of the sorcerer's touch of death. A frantic frenzy of exchange amplifies fear until its fulmination in violence. The sorcerer is still here. He didn't move away because of the threats of stoning. He spent all the money. People are scared witless. And Mick writes, my head spins. I feel insensible to it all, yet I'm immersed living and working in the center of a people deeply bound by it. He writes regularly about the community elders and those in authority as the people put them in and how they often pronounce curses on other people, on other tribal leaders, for example, even on some of their own people, on school teachers, on people from the community who have broken particular customs that they set. A curse is pronounced. One teacher who was cursed, he wrote, immediately left town running for his life. It's a war of spirits, a real present-day spirit war. Now, most of us don't think in these terms, do we? We don't think in the terms of the spiritual. Maybe you've experienced a sickness that didn't seem to have any physical cause, and you thought, maybe there's something spiritual going on, but I'm not meant to think that, am I? Or maybe you felt under attack and thought, It's got some kind of spiritual link. Maybe you've seen this kind of spiritual thing when you've visited overseas, for example, or in New Age beliefs or Eastern religions where spiritual things seem more prevalent, more real, certainly more talked about. But most of us, we've been brought up to think that the extent of existence is intellectual, is material, emotional, It must be logically explainable, basically, traceable to things like chemical pathways, reactions, neurons, those kinds of things. Otherwise, it's not really real. See, for most of us, at least most people in the West, what we believe is what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. 
we've put transcendent realities basically to one side and decided we've got to get on life, get on with life without them there. No hell below us, no spiritual here with us, no anything really above us in the sky. Well, not according to Jesus. <laughs> not according to Jesus. He sees things differently, and so we were asked this question, who is right? Is there something more in this world than we can see? And if there is, what are we meant to do about it? Can we do anything about it at all? Are we better off just ignoring it? So we're continuing this series in Matthew's account. And remember, Jesus has healed and restored various people, religious and non-religious, those outsiders particularly. He's gathered a stack of followers, a crowd around him who are trying to follow him, but then he gets on a boat and goes across the other side of the lake and he's questioned the commitment of those who wanted to follow him, would-be followers. And then he says no to wind and no to waves, and they stop. And the disciples ask this question, what kind of man is this? And that's really the question that drives this whole section. What kind of man is this? Who is this Jesus figure? And that's our big question really today. What sort of person is this? And particularly, what sort of authority does he really have? And so this first story is that of the, the spirits being sent into the swine, the pigs. When he came to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him, and they were so violent that no one could pass that way. And so Jesus is now in non-Jewish territory, Gentile area, at a place that seems to have some kind of hillside near it, ascending up from the lake. Now, this is not a place where Jews are going to be very keen to live, why? Because there's pigs in this area, unclean animals, and there's ancient tombs in this area, unclean places. And living in them, the people possessed by the demons, unclean people, like these two guys who, who come out to meet Jesus in this story. No one wants to go by this way. It's dangerous. It's violent, because these men are, are, are violent. And yet Jesus is passing by, possibly even coming to these men, and they meet Jesus, they come towards him, and Jesus meets them. But look who's afraid. Verse 29, What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They are the ones scared of Jesus' power. He's not considered a violent man like they are, but they're scared of his power. They're assuming he can torture, even destroy them. They want him to leave them alone. Now, the disciples back in the boat, they wondered what kind of man Jesus was. But these guys seem to have an answer. They think he's the son of God, which, if that's the case, makes him, as, as, the, the, father of, as the, the, the one of good, and them as the demons of the devil, they're at, at, at odds with each other. They're enemies. These demons recognize Jesus' authority over the spirit world, and so they immediately treat Jesus like he's invading their space. And what's fascinating is they know being destroyed is actually their ultimate fate in the end. Verse 29, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? There is a time, they understand, where they will be destroyed, taken, just tormented. They'll be judged in the end. And so as we read in other parts of the Bible, in like Revelation chapter 20, we get pictures of that kind of judgment of Satan and then those who will be with him. And the judge is Jesus. 
they say, have you come to torment us before the time? And Matthew tells us that there's some pigs in the distance, probably thousands of them being farmed to sell. And so the demons beg Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into those pigs. And notice here it's the demons, not the men doing the talking. They've got control of these men, overpowered them. And again, they assume Jesus has power. If you send us out, they assume he can do it. Send us into the pigs. And so our question becomes again, are they right to assume Jesus' power? What kind of power does he have? Should they even be calling him the Son of God as they do here? Verse 32, Jesus says, go. And the demons come out, go into the pigs. The herd rushes down the steep slope into, slope into the lake and they're drowned in the water. Just like that. Now you imagine being there, being a herdsman of those pigs? My, but, like you've been farming them and then they're just gone. They've, they've run into the lake and they've drowned. It's a scary encounter. These pigs lazily lying, wandering around on the hillside, just suddenly, boom, turn and run into a lake. Jesus says, go, and the demons submit. And Jewish thinking, and, and across the ancient world more broadly, there is a connection between something evil and something unclean. They're not one and the same. Unclean doesn't e equal evil or wrong. But they have a, a similar association. If, if someone is unclean, that limits their access to God. If they're evil, that also does. The pigs here could not handle the demonic power within them. The spirits were, were dangerous. Their purpose was evil, inflicting suffering and, and even death. They belong to, to the underworld. And so the pigs end up being drowned in the, the water. Because the biblical writers basically assume a, a three-tiered universe, as was understood at the time. The heavens, the realm of God with his angels, which is also in part the domain of Satan, the spiritual forces of evil, even though temporarily. And then there's the earth, the realm of humanity, earthlings, the physical creation within the earth. And then there's the underworld, that which comes below the earth, which is seen as the place of the dead. And so we get descriptions like Sheol or Hades, and hell becomes a part of that as well. They're not literally above and middle and below, but that's how the ancient person would have thought of them. Those physical directions and locations are assumed. They represent the, the three realms in biblical in the biblical mindset. And then add to that, as we saw last week, the waters as the representative of the chaos, the anti-order, as you'd expect, of the underworld. And so the water often acts like this portal to the underworld. Now in this story, demon-possessed men, where do they live? Amongst the tombs of the dead. Underground, underworld places. And these men are possessed by demonic spirits. And so it seems what's going on here is this picture of a spirit from the underworld has breached the divide and entered the this world, but Jesus sends them back where they belong, via the unclean animals to the realm of chaos and disorder. And in so doing, what does he achieve? He restores order and cleanness to these men. Now, I don't think the demons actually die with the pigs here. Possible, but I'm not convinced they do. But they're gone from this man, that is certain. Jesus has authority over them. 
And the response, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Something literally out of this world has just happened. These townspeople even trusted the, the stinky herdsmen in order to listen to them and then come back and see and meet this Jesus. But they plead with him to leave. What's going on there? Jesus' power is scary, and they recognize it. It makes people tremble and not want him with them. They've lost their income, these herdsmen. It'd be thousands of dollars of produce. The townspeople, if, if they're Gentile and are interested in bacon, they're, they're going to miss out on their Thursday morning breakfast. This exposing and dealing with the spiritual realm, the underworld, it's, it's scary stuff. And so they want Jesus gone. They want their lives returned back to, to normality. A bunch of years ago, I was um, in a cafe, and I was actually reading this very passage. And, and a, a fairly boisterous lady was sitting at the table next to me and was, loving, was expressing lots of things about the world and her view. And a baby in the cafe let out this light, pretty loud scream, a cry. And she said, babies should be banned in places like this. I was a little shocked. But I was more shocked 10 minutes later when a dog barked. Someone should give him a cuddle, she said. See, the townspeople, the cafe dwellers of the first century Galilee time, they've got more concern for the price of pigs than for people. For a person Jesus has just restored. People who are, are now gone from the story. Verse one of chapter nine, they're gone because Matthew moves on. Jesus gets back into a boat, crosses over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. This guy cannot walk. He, he, he needs to be carried. He's dependent for food, for relocation, for hygiene, a medical cure would have been highly unlikely for this kind of man at that kind of time. And so his mates bring him to Jesus and assume that Jesus can just do something for him. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He declares on this man a whole new reality. Your rejection of God, your debt that you owe to him, gone, forgiven, cleansed, fixed. Take heart, have courage. Now, some of the experts in the law hear this and they don't praise or think maybe he could help others. But immediately, this fellow is blaspheming, they say. They know Jesus is claiming divinity, speaking on behalf of God without the right as they see it. And so if that's the case, he's then defaming God, making God out to be less than he otherwise should be, equating him with someone lesser. That's how they see it. Jesus is claiming the right to free someone from a debt that only God can forgive for sins against him, so only he can pardon it. Now, at that time, the priests would represent God in declaring forgiveness, but they weren't claiming that they were the ones wrong. They weren't claiming divinity. There was an offering, a sacrifice that had to be given. 
And Jesus says these words without a sacrifice. Well, at least not a sacrifice yet. There will be a sacrifice. It will be his own life on the cross. But that will come later. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing what they were thinking, seeing their reaction, why do you think evil in your hearts? He turns the camera right back on them. To think of Jesus as less than God as Jesus sees it, to not care for this man's sin problem, that's evil according to Jesus. It's a war of words, isn't it? And so who's right? Verse 5, Jesus puts them on the spot, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up, get up and walk. Now from the perspective of, of these kinds of teachers, religious teachers, they'd probably have witnessed healings. There were, were healings recorded in the first century. They may have pronounced people as healed. But to forgive sins, only God can do that. And yes, forgiving sins might be easier to just say because you can't then prove what's happened. But by far, it's the harder thing to actually do. And so to show Jesus is for real, to show he's actually done the harder thing, he says, verse 6, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man stands up, takes his mat, and walks home in full view of them all. This man is, is given restored independence. He's allowed to walk. He's given dignity. He's now got opportunities again that he never had. But that's nothing. His physical healing is nothing compared to what those four words, your sins are forgiven, have achieved for this man. The physical healing is just small proof of the spiritual transformation that has taken place. And so the crowds, they're afraid when they see this. Filled with awe, praise God who had given such authority to man, to mankind, to human, to this Jesus. What kind of man is this? What kind of authority does he have? Well, what have we seen in these, these two stories? What have we seen? What kind of man is this? Well, let me suggest three things that then culminate in a fourth. And uh, my slides are not connecting, Melody, so I'll get you to flick through them. Thanks. First is that Jesus' authority is, is spiritual. That Jesus' authority is spiritual. See, in the ancient world and in many places today, sin and sickness are not especially distinct from each other. They're, they're, they're seen as together. You know, like how we feel physically sick, often when our conscience is deeming us guilty, we, we feel that on the inside. There's a connection in the ancient world, the ancient thought, and across a lot of the world, even still today, between sin and sickness. Spiritual and physical interact with each other. In the Bible, there is, is even instances where some people are sick because of a specific sin, though that's not the normal case. More generally, the Bible sees sick, sickness as a consequence of living in a fallen and, and sinful world. And so only when God's kingdom will come in all its fullness will sickness be completely removed, gone, because that's when sin will be gone. That's the underlying problem. And so here in this passage and in Jesus' coming, God has arrived, God's kingdom has arrived, and so God's kingdom age has arrived, and Jesus' healings and physical, sick, physical exorcisms and those kinds of things, they're a sign that that arrival has begun, has come. 
you know, think of how a trailer works for a film, a trailer to a full-length film. It's actually the film. It's excerpts of the film, and yet it's not the full film. They're excerpts that are presented viscerally in advance. The demons are beaten in this clip of the trailer. Their master will be beaten in the finale. And so as we live now and we read these kind of wor- kinds of words, we must be careful not to assume that the full trailer, the full movie, sorry, has arrived. Think of healings and, and supernatural experiences as the main game, as our greatest hope on this earth. They are good, they are wonderful, but they're just pointers to something more. This restored, paralyzed man will get old and frail again. The demon-possessed blokes may have more demons come, particularly if they uh, don't fill up their lives with good. The healing for us in this life, however that the healing comes, is just a pointer, just like it was for these guys. And so our goal can't be so small as just physical healing. God wants to deal with sin. God wants to deal with Satan. He wants Jesus' victory known and celebrated everywhere. Jesus' authority is spiritual. He beats evil in these instances as a precursor to beating evil for good for all time. The second thing we see is that Jesus' authority is is magisterial. It's not a word we commonly use these days, but he's judge. The demons know that. Have you come here to appoint us before the time? What's the time? It's the time when he will judge. They expect Jesus to be the one who will execute justice against them. And they tremble. Recognizing Jesus' authority leads to fear. Being afraid of his power being afraid of being on the wrong side of judgment. His authority is magisterial, and he shows that here, but it's nothing compared to the final judgment. The third thing we see is that Jesus' authority is reconciliatory. Reconciliatory. He claims and then proves that he, a man on earth, has authority to release a person from their debt against God, to reconcile the destroyed relationship there. And so by declaring forgiveness here, he speaks as the one who is offended. Offended even by this paralyzed man's rejection of God. By all people's rejection of God. When Jesus first looks at this man, what does he see? A need to have his sins forgiven. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. This man has unresolved guilt. Judgment hanging over his head. There's a spiritual war between this man and God. And Jesus, what does he say? Go, try harder. Fix the problem yourself. Or I'll heal you now so you might go and change your ways. That'll be enough. No. He forgives him. But Jesus has that power, and that is this man's greatest need. His authority is reconciliatory. And so that leaves us to conclude With all these things, spiritual authority, magisterial authority, reconciliatory authority, that Jesus' authority is divine authority. The crowd in the house, the man gets up and walks, there's a crowd in that place, and they honor and worship God who had given such authority to men. People see and cannot deny that Jesus has such great authority. Now, in our justice system, we have this concept of doing time. You, know, you hear of someone going to jail and we call it doing time. 
as a way to pay a cost for, to make something right. And there's some, some good reasons for that in, in our justice system. But if someone yells abuse at me and assaults me, what's the cost to be paid? Who has that hurt? The government? The chief correctional officer? No, it's me that they've hurt. And so in that case, only I can forgive because I've incurred the, the cost, the burden. When Jesus says and then proves he has authority on earth to forgive sins, he's saying he'll bear the cost, but not as a third party, as God himself, as the offended party, which is exactly what he does by dying on the cross. Jesus' authority is the divine authority of the divine, the, of God. All these things point to Jesus as God. Which means the question we need to ask ourselves is, if he has this kind of authority and power, which side are we on of Jesus? Which side of Jesus are you on? He offers us freedom. He offers us forgiveness from the underworld oppressors, from the this-worldly oppressors, from the above oppressors. We want to be on his side in these spirit wars, don't we? Well, my friend uh, Mick, as he recounted that story of the curse being put on a teacher, he finished his letter with these words, My head spins. I feel insensible to it all. Yet I'm immersed and living and working in the centre of a people deeply bound by it. The answer is clear and found in James 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our people here need to submit to God. Please pray that they would. We not, might not be especially conscious of the spiritual realm like Mick is and people like that in that kind of place, but Satan's lies are everywhere. And as a good deceiver, he deceives in ways that we are more likely to be deceived by. And so more commonly in our experience, won't be strange dreams or curses, but lies about things we trust. Convincing us that we don't need God. We have all we need. Convincing us that we can overcome things on ourselves like temptation. Convincing us that we are the judges of truth. Satan and his demons will attack us in different ways. But the spiritual threat is no less real. Because sin is no less real. But Jesus is stronger. Jesus wins. What he proclaims here, he completes at the cross. And so with Paul in Romans chapter 8, we can say these words, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the hope of the Christian that we have no need to fear. Are you on his side? Are you on Jesus' side? Let me pray. Our great God, we, we thank you for this Jesus and what these stories reveal about his incredible authority, ultimately to be able to forgive sin, sin that's against you. And so we thank you for him, for his power and authority and his love that he would reach out to ask us and offer that same forgiveness. Amen.